It's with uh, much anticipation and with gratitude that I uh, come now to open up the Word of God with you. It's such a, a great time of preparation uh, for us to do this. I appreciated the, the uh, sacrifice of praise that was given uh, today, um, especially uh, Fred's mention of the fact that God has given us His absolute truth, a wisdom that helps us to uh, discern good from evil, right from wrong, moral from immorality. And um, it uh, just fits so well with what the sage has for us today, and I'm eager to bring that to you. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Ecclesiastes 9, we're looking at verses 11 to 18, and um, uh, I have titled our message to be in the know or be in the know, a familiar expression which means to be well informed, especially about a topic that's not widely known. And uh, well, that's the gospel really. (laughs) And we want people to be in the know. I chose it uh, for that very reason. It, It really captures the idea of the text. The sage wants his son and of course those who might later read his book to know about uh, how important it is to know God and his wisdom. And for those who don't, we have another opportunity to to learn, or they have another opportunity to learn uh, what that is. And you and I, who do, have another opportunity to learn from the foot of the sage how he enlightens people who don't, and how we need to take our cue from him in our evangelism. So... Without further ado, let me get into a a rather lengthy introduction, but it's a a necessary one. The sage has brought up wisdom or human wisdom before, a few times now in Ecclesiastes, and and he has nothing good to say about it, to be frank. We have uh, have encountered it, uh, or first encountered it, I should say, way back in chapter 1. And we saw there the different levels of wisdom, if you remember, epistemologies and And that the highest form of it is rationalism. Some say empiricism. And we don't need to quibble about the distinction between the two. The long and short of it is both rely on experience, on imperfect observations of life, either from scientific research, trial and error, or both, and also on inaccurate interpretations of those observations from life. Human wisdom Well, it's been around as long as humans have been around, and much of it is traditional. It's been passed down from generation to generation. It it comes through the school system today and religious catechisms, various kinds of literature. Maybe you received yours from your grandparents in the form of, of sayings and expressions and proverbs. All cultures have wisdom literature. Even ancient cultures had it. But let me give you some examples from our own culture. Maybe you even grew up with some of these. A stitch in time saves nine. Some of you remember that. See the head shaking? Which means it's better to fix a problem when it's small than to wait till it gets bigger. So don't procrastinate. Or there's Giovanni uh, Torriano's well-known, you can attract more flies with honey than you can with vinegar which comes from his work, A Commonplace in Italian Proverbs, and 
uh, proverbial phrases published way back in 1666. It means that it's much easier to get what you want when you're being polite rather than being rude. And who can forget, don't count your chickens before they hatch? A memorable way to remind us not to make plans that depend on something good happening before you know that it actually happened. And finally, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime, which is self-explanatory. Now these wisdom sayings, they, they don't come from the Bible, but their meaning is compatible with certain biblical principles I'll give you. We should confront, for example, a problem before it multiplies. We don't procrastinate. Our language should be seasoned with truth and spoken in a loving manner uh, with the hearer's best interest in mind. We should not make rash decisions. And we surely want to make disciples who are self-perpetuating. But say what you want about human wisdom. No matter where it comes from, no matter how precious it is to be to a particular person, no matter how it might at times complement biblical truth, it comes ultimately from Satan himself. Make no mistake about that. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses teaches us that satanic counsel ruled the day for Adam and has since dictated the way ungodly people in this world think and act. And no matter how it manifests itself in life, that's always true. Paul rightly called it the doctrine of demons, you remember. A satanic counsel is customized and personalized in the human heart, which makes human wisdom. Now, we Christians, we know a different wisdom, right? We know a different wisdom, a divine wisdom, which comes from God alone. It's his word. Paul speaks of it in contrast with worldly wisdom in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom complete, uh, complement, I'm sorry, compete against each other. Uh, they're not compatible. Godly wisdom is from above, from heaven, which God revealed to his people in his word, which we call special revelation. Human wisdom comes from Satan himself, personalized in the hearts of fallen individuals. The lie, he told the first couple in the garden, is the foundation of all human belief systems. So these two counsels, or wisdoms, couldn't be more opposite. Each one claims to be the real deal and considers the other to be absolute foolishness. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. So traditional wisdom, aside from the few times it catches up with the Bible, will ultimately misguide any of God's people should they listen to it. Consider, for example, this set of human wisdom sayings, which I'm also sure that you know well. If a man gets a girl pregnant, he should marry her and make an honest woman of her. Now, the Bible certainly calls a man, a Christian man, who may have sinned by getting a woman pregnant, to be responsible in addressing his responsibility in this matter. No question. But marriage is not a foregone conclusion here. Maybe the two are not ready to marry yet. Maybe the Lord has called one or both to be single for the rest of their lives. 
Or if the pregnant woman is a non-Christian, marriage is certainly out of the question for the Christian man, according to 1 Corinthians 7.39. In this case, a Christian man who who decides to marry the unsaved woman that he got pregnant is like righting one wrong with another one. Now, this happens all the time. And when it happened under my watch years ago between a Christian woman in my church and a non-Christian man that none of us knew she was dating, her Christian parents were very insistent that I marry them. And when I said that I couldn't do that because the, the Lord forbade such a union, they pointed to the unborn child as an exception to God's command. But there's a child involved. They screamed, to which I calmly replied, Children, don't make a marriage. Another saying from human wisdom goes like this, You cannot teach an old dog new tricks. Now, I've, whole, I've heard this from older saints who sought me out for counseling. <clears throat> they reminded me of this in those situations where they found godly change difficult, and in some cases even undesirable. I would send them away for a week with biblical principles to apply in place of their habitual sinful responses to their situations. But when they returned the following week and told us that they hadn't applied these certain biblical principles, their excuse was, well, you know how it is, Pastor. You you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. And according to human wisdom, we're not supposed to expect Harry to start loving his wife for 40 years the way God calls him to when he trained himself all that time to neglect her. He's too old to change. But my response to Harry was, thank God you're not a dog. God says you can change by the power of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, does not live in dogs. So let's get busy. What we have before us in this wonderful passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is not so much directed at Christians who are tempted to fall back on or resort to human wisdom or fleshly wisdom as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. Rather, it is directed to unbelievers. In order to raise serious doubts about the integrity of their individual and precious wisdom tradition so that they will abandon it, and we might even say, will replace it with godly wisdom, which is how he has always argued in earlier chapters. Be that as it may, I do believe that there is an implication of the text here that the sage challenges believers as well, those of us who are born from above the sun, who embrace godly wisdom. And the message to us is that we should show the world the superiority of godly wisdom to human wisdom by living it. Now, we've mentioned many times from these passages in Ecclesiastes the secondary application of true worshipers to practice what they preach, right? We have to practice what we preach. And I believe that many passages in Ecclesiastes have this dual application. They convict both the unbeliever and the believer, much in the same way that Jesus' teaching does. 
When, for example, Jesus told his would-be followers that he demands their 100% loyalty or else they're not worthy to be his disciples, those who were already his disciples had to be challenged by hearing this, right? Hmm. Is my loyalty to the master singular or divided? I better check. Do you see what I mean? Peter and John and Andrew and the rest could not very well have stood beside Jesus as he preached the convicting messages of the Beatitudes without some serious introspection and reflection. Yikes! Do I, do I show this to be true in my life? So the sage has a challenge for us this morning, and it's to challenge our unbelieving listener to forsake his wisdom for uh, wisdom for life, for the gospel of life. That's certainly one challenge. The other is that we might show them why that's necessary by the way we live. So having said that, the main thrust of Ecclesiastes 9 to 18, I'm sorry, 9 verses 11 to 18, is for the unbeliever for the non-Christian, the one who embraces and lives by an under-the-sun worldview, who is still part of the realm, the realm of under-the-sun, and trusts an anti-biblical wisdom for living. So it's for them primarily. Sage says to him, this person, what we need to say to unbelievers that we dialogue with. He says, you trust your worldly wisdom for successful living at your own risk. For it cannot guarantee you control over times and events because it is limited by them, relative, and undermines itself. Now notice that this caution or warning comes right at the start. And that would be the first part of, of our outline. You, you trust your worldly wisdom for successful living at your own risk. For it cannot guarantee your control over times and events. Now, you say, well, that's rather forward, don't you think? Well, at this point in the book, the sages earn the right to be forward, just as we have to earn the right to be heard by our unbelieving audience. Now, you need to gauge this rather carefully as some already... Some are ready, rather, to hear the hard truths of the gospel sooner than others. And it's certainly easier to be more direct, I think, sooner than later with a person who's in crisis. Or maybe actually invite you to tell them what God's truth has to say about a particular matter. Or is just plain fed up with life and at the end of his rope. People in these situations, they seem to be more eager to hear what we have to say than those who are enjoying life for the moment. Nonetheless... We have to take time to dismantle, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, their ideological strongholds, their human wisdom. So let's see how the sage does this. You notice that he introduces nothing far-fetched, nothing contrived, but rather a simple fact that any sane unbeliever in this world could hardly deny. He says that human wisdom cannot guarantee anyone his or her desired outcomes. Verse 11, again, I saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning for favor or favor to the skillful. Hmm. 
What's this about? Well, the sage presents his listener with a list of real-life events that illustrates some painful exceptions to the general rules set by this precious wisdom, this worldly wisdom. For example, everyone back then knew that the swiftest wins races or the race. The warrior is the one that wins the battle. The wise know how to make a living. The financially discerning know how to make money. Human wisdom, which stands on generations of experience and observations, tells those under the sun that these outcomes are really a foregone conclusion or sure bets. At least they're supposed to be. Ah, but here's where the sage raises doubt in the minds of in their minds about the integrity and the stability of their wisdom. Can you really be sure that this is the case in every instance? Do you really possess a wisdom that will guarantee your desired outcome every time? You'd better be sure because some of these real-life examples are a matter of life and death. Mismanaging your finances can leave you and your family starving. Any sane person would have to admit that no one can be 100% sure of the outcome of any event. Human wisdom is, is neither omniscient nor prophetic. Human wisdom is human. Well, someone responds, I can be 95% sure. Okay, even if you could be 99% sure, can you be sure that you're not the 1% that's doomed to fail? And there's more. The reason no one can guarantee or their, re- their wisdom cannot guarantee their desired outcome of events is that their wisdom has no control over the events themselves. Human wisdom cannot control the affairs of life. Uh, the sage says that it's only a matter of time, you see, before the situation will overtake the swift or the soldier, the wise man and the savvy businessman. Just a matter of time. If you want a theological reason for that, I'll refer you to, to the one that the sage himself has brought up already on several occasions. This fallen world operates by the will of a sovereign God who ordains certain consequences to human actions under the sun. He's ordained a time for everything, remember, to take place under the sun. And by the way, he doesn't check with anyone before he fulfills the next part of his plan for the ages. In such a world as fallen as this is, God's will reigns supreme, and he'll have his way even in the lives of the lost. Now, our unbelieving listener should concede that no one can control events that pass in and out of time, even if he doesn't understand the theological explanation. He should concede that no matter how smart or how wise he or anybody else is, he doesn't possess that kind of ability by his human wisdom. Human wisdom is not sovereign. It cannot control the affairs of life. In fact, the opposite is true. Not only is human wisdom unable to guarantee a person his desired outcomes of certain events or control the actual events behind these outcomes, human wisdom itself is subject to the times and to events.
consider verse 12 in the second part of our outline. Worldly wisdom itself is controlled by the times and situations. Sage says, for certainly no one knows his time. Like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. For all one's wisdom and knowledge and skill in living life, he cannot know what takes place five minutes into the future. He cannot know when he'll ever encounter evil events or undesirable seasons of life. They catch us all off guard. No matter how much planning or foresight has gone into a particular event, something can easily prevent it from happening or change it in some way. And then we're completely helpless, subject to the so-called chance happenings of life. Right? Ceiling could fall down. You catch a germ. Someone busts in a meeting and shoots everyone. That's happened. And at that point, a person's wisdom makes them no better off than fish who get caught in nets or birds in a fowler's snare. Do you see? It's all insane, isn't it? He brings this all out. The smartest, wisest person with all his wisdom is just as vulnerable and subject to the elements and to the unpredictability of life as any other creature on this earth. Now, is this not why we have rain days for important outdoor events? Refunds for paid events that get canceled? Insurance policies? Warranties? Accident reports? Guardrails? Why people put erasers on the ends of pencils? Now, to trust your life with a belief system and epistemology that is so vulnerable and subject to time and eventualities, that's not wise. What else does this age say about human wisdom that we need to keep in mind as we evangelize in our ongoing dialogues with people? He says this, number three in our outline, wisdom, human wisdom is relative. It's relative. Let's look at verses 13 to 16. It's a grand illustration. He says, I've observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it's significant to me. There was a small city with few men in it. A great king came against it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. This is pretty straightforward. The sage apparently was greatly impressed by the wisdom that came from this insignificant and marginalized of society. Who knew? In the heat of the moment, this poor man was a welcome surprise. Out of the midst of all the chaos and fear and worry of imminent invasion, where none of the military heads could offer a solution, comes the cool and calm voice of wisdom from the mouth of someone the nation least expected and least liked. Some street person living on the fringe? Possibly a veteran who had lost his way? Someone spending his time gleaning food at the corner of Israelite crop fields? Who can say? 
All we know is that just at the right time, this man spoke wisdom and the city officials applied it and warded off invasion and saved many lives. But the sage wants us to believe that the credit and the fame for this unknown one-hit wonder was short-lived. In fact, soon after, people despised him and no longer listened to him. And perhaps in the aftermath, he tried offering more wisdom on, say, disaster prevention, foreign relations, or national security. It's hard to say. All we know is that he was dismissed out of hand. That's it. No more. No one listened. And maybe you're wondering, if heads of state or ruling officials or the masses who blindly follow them reject what seems to be sound or wise advice for their situations, what would they have embraced and promoted instead? Foolishness? Folly? Now that would be pretty silly, wouldn't it? To claim that we're not going to follow wisdom and and instead adopt folly, even though it's exactly what they were doing. Who would admit to that? Well, no one would admit to that. And that brings me to the second fact of this text. We said wisdom is relative. So let me explain how this works. In order to reject traditional wisdom while not admitting it, they have to redefine it without sounding foolish. They redefine traditional wisdom that they should follow in their case, and they advocate folly in the name of wisdom. So you can imagine how they argued. Well, who says this poor wise man has the last word on wisdom? Uh, what, what was right once is, is not necessarily right a second time. Times change. Situations are not identical. More than this, to really make their new rehash warmed over wisdom sound superior and appealing to the people, they openly discredit the wisdom of the poor wise man before the masses. Do you see how that works? The text indicates that they discriminated against him. He was not of their ilk. He was not a military head or a city official or someone prominent or important, even though they they couldn't deny that his wise course of action saved the city. And because they couldn't argue against his public track record, short-lived though it was, They attacked his character rather than address the substance of his argument for wise courses of action. Now, in the field of rhetoric, we call this an ad hominem argument. He can't be right. He's too poor or too fat or or a slouch or a middle-aged white man. As far as they're concerned, this man's wisdom on the whole is really insignificant or made insignificant by the fact that he himself is insignificant. So on the basis of social status, they discriminate not only against him, but against the wise advice that that had proved to be right when it counted. And in light of this, we see that human wisdom then is relative. The poor man's wisdom at one moment in time seemed right. At least it worked. But now, now new wisdom dictates that we go in another direction. And what we say is now the wisest course of action. The last part of our outline brings this discussion on wisdom then to a logical end. It's where we want to take our unbelieving listener, in fact. 
This is how you get him there. You might say, with human wisdom being anti-God, parenthesis here, that's Genesis 3, with it being anti-God, personalized and customized in the human heart, with no ability to control the events of life, but is rather quite susceptible to them, and is no doubt, and is not obsolete, but rather relative and always changing, you should be surprised, you would be not surprised to know, then, that wisdom undermines itself. Your precious, traditional wisdom, wisdom that you live by, undermines itself. Human wisdom, in any form, ultimately undermines itself. Why do I say that? Because it's human and relative, that's why. When wisdom is, no, is not absolute but always changing, it will eventually contradict itself. Here's an example. Conventional wisdom says, don't judge a book by its cover. You all remember that? We grew up with that one. We know what that means. The cover may look inviting, but the book could turn out to be boring and dry as dust. Or just the opposite, a dull, uninviting cover that even turns you off. Doesn't compare with the great story sandwiched between its covers. Conventional wisdom says, look at What does the table of contents say about its material? What does the subject index tell you about its details? Or the bibliography about the extent of its research? Or the credentials of the author about whether he's an authority in the field or not? Or even the endorsers on the back cover? Is the book contemporary? Is it a contemporary piece or does it reflect an outdated view? Check the date of publication. More than this, conventional wisdom bids us read and then decide whether it's worth recommending. The fact of the matter is, beloved, people do judge books by their cover, don't they? Oh yes, of course they do. And they'll always do that, just like judging many other things by the appearance of the thing rather than by their substance or contributions or merits. We have a number of examples from our own society that this is true. You might not know it, but there's a whole psychology of first impressions. Oh, yeah. You know, only have one time to make a first impression. And how important it is. You can be sure that publishing companies certainly know the wisdom of first impressions, and the wisdom that judge, that judges books on the basis of their covers. Oh, yes. In fact, they count on it, and they spend lots of money creating their marketing departments that will design a book jacket that will appeal to the consumer. Marketing companies operate, you see, by the wisdom of judging the worth of something by its appearances. Doesn't that make sense? Conventional wisdom says otherwise. So which is it? Well, it all depends who you ask. Because there's no collective, universally accepted wisdom anymore. Or absolute wisdom 
out there. It's all personalized and customized by each individual. So one, one's wisdom for living is bound to contradict another's wisdom for living. And it often is the case that someone's own wisdom for living will even advocate something that contradicts what it once advocated in the same situation. What was generally accepted theory about the wise way to live 100 years ago differs widely from today, right? It does. We can see that. Now, in some situations, that's to be expected. We, we've advanced technologically and scientifically and medically. The world 100 years ago is not the same as the one that we live in today. So there's bound to be aspects of general or conventional or common wisdom that really doesn't apply anymore because of new data. But not much should have changed regarding what's moral and ethical. In fact, nothing at all should change in this category. But it has. Much has over the last couple of decades, and the change has not been for the better. The sage tells us in verses 17 and 18 that while it does much good to the welfare of city or, or, na- or a nation when calm words of the wise are heeded more than the shouts of a ruler over fools and that people come to benefit from the cool head of wisdom that prevails over weapons of mass destruction. It takes just one devious and wicked fool with tremendous influence to come along and destroy it all and wreak havoc. And he does it by swaying the masses with a new, well-defined wisdom. Wisdom for the ages. Satan did it with Adam and Eve. Usurping God's counsel in their lives by replacing it with his counsel that kills And he has many disciples today. Now, that is the essence of this passage. I want to take us to the New Testament to confirm this principle of human wisdom. And of course, by implication, the superiority of godly wisdom. That we need to tell people and enlighten them to both. And there are so many passages in the New Testament we could turn to to find confirmation for the sage's message. There is, for example, Paul's discussion of God's wisdom and worldly wisdom in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that I mentioned at the beginning of our time. James chapter 3, verses 13 and 18 bring the same comparison with our added responsibility to live according to God's wisdom. We actually looked at that last time. I think what Paul has to say in Ephesians 3 is as good as a confirmation as any. Ephesians chapter 3, in verses 8 to 12, which we heard read this morning, Paul speaks of his calling to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, which is another way of saying enlightening all people as to the plan of God or God's wisdom, which has been brought to light by Paul himself. Mysteries of God's wisdom, Paul's revealed in his preaching. The plan was to bring people of all walks of life, this mystery of God, this wisdom of God, 
people of all walks of life, here represented by Jews and Gentiles, together in one body, a body of Christ. And how can such a monumental task as that be achieved? Well, certainly not by human, relative, vulnerable wisdom that undermines itself, which at times may try to unite by force, or at other times by deceptive rhetoric that redefines life for a nation, or by the religion of politics. No, we know that the world embraces a wisdom that, sh- that says that there is unity in diversity, right? That's what the world, worldly wisdom says. How silly is that? That diverse etymologies that compete against each other can actually create unity so long as we just tolerate them. I mean, think about that, right? Yet people believe it. It's really the hallmark of the postmodernist era. But a postmodernist epistemology, like any wisdom epistemology, undermines itself. How? Well, by saying, on the one hand, that it tolerates all views, which it believes is necessary to create unity, and on the other hand, that it tolerates no view that is intolerant of all views, like Christianity. But because now it is intolerant at one point, according to its own definition, it should not be tolerated and therefore undermines itself. See? All human wisdom epistemologies eventually undermine themselves has to happen because they're human. They're not absolute. Can you see the futility, the insanity of human wisdom at its best? Godly wisdom says that true unity of of a group of people is created only when the people in the group are born again, born from above the sun by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who makes us alive causes us to embrace the work of Jesus Christ and unites us to Christ himself. We become part of his body organically by the work of the Spirit, and we are all of the same mind, Paul says. Nothing diverse about that. This, Paul says in verse 10, is part of the multifaceted wisdom of God that Paul says might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Not just to human beings, but even to the angels who long to look at God's redemptive program. It's what we offer the world to replace their precious, personalized, customized human wisdom. Without it, society will completely self-destruct. As we know, history has borne out of other societies. And I'm reminded of Paul's explanation of fallen humanity in Romans 1, where he highlights the fact that people think that they know better than God and they reject his multifaceted wisdom while claiming to be wise. But the truth is, Paul says, they became fools. 
And then Paul says that God gave them over to their desires. Paul chooses his words very carefully and deliberately here. He says specifically, therefore, verse 24, <coughs> Romans 1, God gave them to up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then further, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, people having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. Isn't it interesting when humanity rejects God, it always gets worse. As a result of rejecting God and his absolute truth, humanity didn't become better, considering the interests of others as more important than their own, loving their enemies, returning good for evil, striving to be at peace with all men as far as it is possible for them to do so. No, they became selfish, hedonistic, murderers, inventors of evil. We saw this a couple years back, I think, when certain states in the country got the bright idea to defund their police and called those few who hadn't quit the force as a result to stand down from practicing law and order. And what happened was no surprise at all. Looting, mugging, vandalism on an unprecedented When God is removed from people's lives, terrible things come gushing out of them. People must trust God's wisdom in the gospel if they're to find meaning to and great gain in life. Paul said to his young protege in 2 Timothy 3.15, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through Christ, which, uh, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. No other wisdom can do that. We need to tell them, and just as importantly, we need to show them. Now, I want to close with just a few comments. I can see that many of you are shaking your head, yes, and amen. We need to tell them, we need to show them. And maybe those who are listening to this message are doing the same thing. Oh, yes, we need to show them. But it's not easy to live godly wisdom in an anti-Christian atmosphere where it would be considered backward and even offensive. And we need to be ready for this. Christians may, may may not know what biblical wisdom is, or what it might dictate in a particular situation because they don't know the word well. We understand that. Others do know very well what biblical wisdom dictates in any given situation, but they give in to pressure from their context. Still, others operate on worldly wisdom that they have not shed yet. Well, none of that, however, is an excuse not to walk godly. There are Christians, beloved, who still think that it is okay to live with a person of the opposite sex who you do not marry as long as you love each other. To get paid for work and not claim what they make on their taxes. 
or for a husband and a wife to separate and take time away from each other if they're not getting along, or to use vulgarity and profanity in their language. I knew a full-time Christian worker years ago who had a lead foot, and he told me that the reason he didn't put any Christian signs on his bumper on his car is because he wouldn't want to chance giving Christianity a bad name. So instead, he just continued to drive recklessly, I guess. Interesting reasoning. Would we rather not want to conform to the wisdom of Christ's word so that we could be proud to be recognized as his followers? Those to whom you give this vital, divine wisdom in the form of the gospel, they're watching you. Are you prepared to show them what a life that has been transformed by it and lives according to God's wisdom looks like? We need to be ready and prepared. Father, we thank you for this time together. that We could look to your word and we could be encouraged and challenged that the sage has given us a a great model in how we might dialogue with the unbelieving world with regard to its epistemologies, with regard to its, its fortresses, its idol, ideological fortresses, its worldviews, so that we might begin to poke holes in its walls and destroy its fortresses. We might be skilled at taking every thought captive for Christ. Father, we pray then that in our pursuit of this wonderful proclamation of the gospel, we would be careful to make sure that our lives measure up and that we do indeed practice what we preach, that we demonstrate a life that is based on godly wisdom and why it is so superior to anything else. Father, we pray that Your grace will be sufficient for us in these tasks before us until you come again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.